0: nobody asked for another podcast so here you go this is yet another infra
1: podcast hey everyone we gathered here for a special recording to talk about the svb saga and everything that is going on and we have a couple of people here that all have a different view on the situation and so hopefully we can provide some additional information that not exactly the same that you've heard a million times before so, Chase, maybe let's start with you. And can you tell us a little bit more about
2: the history that predates what just happened with SVB? So the history is actually one of, of a regulatory uh, unfolding, and, and it dates back to the 1980s. So prior to the 1980s, regulators were you know, still spooked by the things that happened in, in bank runs and financial crisis, crises prior to then. And they used to evaluate the substance, basically kind of the financial health of the bank by looking at what was actually happening below, like underneath the hood. And I think that we could potentially introduce an analogy here to describe what I mean by substance. So if I'm building, let's say I'm building an apartment building and we want to like understand, like, is what could happen in case of a fire. And, you know, before the 1980s, regulators used to come in and say, what measures did we put in place to make sure that if the fire happens, people can get out safely. And then in the 1980s, something shifted. Uh, two things happened. One, Alan Greenspan uh, kind of led the charge to shift the burden from regulators to shareholders via risk disclosures. And regulators started evaluating processes instead of substance. And so using this analogy we drew earlier, processes would be the equivalent of not necessarily looking what I did to make sure we could get out of a fire, but instead saying, well, if they had someone on staff whose job is to figure out What to do if a fire happens we're going to be able to use that as a stamp of approval and then when i say something about risk disclosures we're basically saying as long as the apartment building has some requirements that they have to tell their owners around the risks that they're taking we can rely on the owners to evaluate those risks and determine whether that apartment building is still like viable and so yeah this is one part the banks lobbying for reduced regulatory burden which you know, justifiably, that in, in, in like makes it harder for them to achieve profits. And this is also one part of the downsizing of agencies capable of evaluating the substance, basically the quality of the financial system, the health, under the Reagan administration. And so this problem really came to a head in 2008 when the regulatory framework you know, finally led to the first big bust due to excessive risk-taking. And this it shouldn't been a, that much of a surprise because... If we're saying the shareholders, the people who are benefiting from the profits of the companies are the ones who are in charge of of evaluating the health of the companies based on their risk disclosures, it's always going to bend towards more risk because they're always chasing returns. Higher returns are directly correlated to the amount of risk you're taking. And so if I want to make more money, I got to take more risk. And that obviously blew up in 2008. And we don't have to necessarily talk about what the sources that were because that's been well documented. And so then 2008, we got stress tests and a stress test is basically a measure of a bank's ability to withstand an economic downturn. And so these regulatory stress tests came in a place where regulators said, hey, you've got to tell us like, and show us what your plan is in case your building burns down, in case, in case the world unfolds, in case there is a bank run, in case you become insolvent." And they set the threshold at which banks had to do this as fifty billion. And so, fast forward to two thousand eight, and legislators passed a bipartisan act called the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. Fast forward to two thousand eighteen, and legislators passed the bipartisan Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, which increased this threshold from fifty billion in assets to two hundred fifty billion. So now they're saying, hey, if you've got You know, if you are below $250 in assets, you are no longer subject to reporting on these stress tests. And we're primarily going to rely on procedural instead of supervisory oversight. Procedural, hey, if you've got the compliance uh, people in place, and if you're reporting out on uh, making your appropriate risk disclosures, then you're not subject to, you know, kind of this deep substance review by regulatory agencies and around that same time there's this bank with fewer than 50 billion in assets called Silicon Valley Bank and before 2018 this bank had fewer than 50 billion in assets fast forward to 2022 they have 211 billion in assets and so the amount that this bank actually had under management was below that 250 billion threshold and was therefore not subject to this you know, to this regulatory oversight. So, Steve, a lot of ink has been spilled over this last week
1: about the Fed's involvement in the situation, you know, what the Fed should have done, whether they were fighting the last war and so on. So maybe you can expand a little bit uh, on that. First of all, Chase, you just
0: nailed that. I think what's interesting about this crisis is that everyone is seeking to place blame everywhere except the place where it's most obvious, which is... And and so Silicon Valley Bank made a, a huge bet on interest rates about a year ago and a bunch of other people made a big bet on interest rates a year ago and what happened the fed raised rates by 4.5 percentage points which is insane both on a percentage basis and also just on an absolute terms they have not done a raise like that in decades and you can argue what happened is it's all silicon valley banks fault for making this big bet and that's true but the reality is is it was this massive rate rise more than anything that just pulled them out from being underwater and to to give some context At the beginning of last year i think the maximum super crazy expectation for the fed raising rates was something like 1.5 percentage points maybe two so then you sit there and say well the fed did this bold act in order to slay inflation and raise they just kept raising kept raising kept raising because the standard issue playbook that we read in every single place is that oh my god the fed is all powerful the fed does everything and all the fed does is yank this interest rate button up and down and the macroeconomy just responds with grace as if, you know, et cetera. The reality of the last year is, is that the Fed kept raising rates in the macro economy, which is the real economy, people going to work every day, just ignored the whole thing. Now, the asset economy, the stock market got obliterated. And the things that depend on assets, like for example, Silicon Valley Bank, or the massive real estate fund that just shuttered, uh, infl- inflows and outflows out of Blackstone about six months ago, that, by the way, to me, is the first canary that died in the coal mine. All of these things are looking both stretched and ugly. So the point, let me just sidestep out here is Silicon Valley Bank's problem is, okay, they made a big bet, but more importantly, they had to take a bunch of assets that they had marked to a total fantasy number and mark them back down to what they would actually get if they sold them in the real market today. Big news flash. Every other bank is sitting on some quantity of those assets, and they are all worth just as much as Silicon Valley Bank's assets. These are not weird, exotic things. This is not 2008. These are boring, stable, mortgage-backed securities. They're worth what they're worth, and the reason they're worth a whole lot less is because the Fed raised rates so high. Playing that back to right now, the question is, is, what have we gotten for all those rate rises? Has inflation plummeted? Has, in, has unemployment skyrocketed? None of this has happened because in fact, what's driving all this inflation and all these issues is just a pure real economy supply demand equation. And the fantasy was always that the fed by yanking this one lever, which is the only macroeconomic lever that we're willing to tolerate was somehow going to have an effect on. So that's the setup for where we are right now. The setup from here is pretty clear and the market has figured this out. There's a 96% chance right now out there that by December, we are cutting rates. And the reason we're cutting rates is not because inflation has been killed, because we were never really going to do much by, against inflation by cutting rates. The reason we're cutting rates is because otherwise we're going to destroy the financial system. And the financial system's kind of important. So when it comes down to it, I think the Fed's decision choice here is either we keep raising rates in this sort of quixotic effort to kill inflation, where the point being that the Fed can't create more oil, they can't create more used cars, they can't create more labor. And that's the reason prices were going up, one of the reasons or we cut rates because the whole thing was kind of a failed effort, or we destroy the financial system. And the only thing I would point out is is the Fed original, the the original charter of the Fed back in 1907, when they finally kind of got their act together, was built out of a bank run. And the reason the Fed is there to protect the banks. The whole inflation mandate didn't really show up until 1977. And the whole 2% inflation target, which everyone treats as if it's this holy relic that you know, must be venerated to all time, didn't show up until 2012. And when you get down to it, if we end up at 3% inflation with a non-destroyed financial system, we are probably better off than at 2% inflation with a destroyed financial system. And my assumption is the Fed next week's going to figure that out. So that's the short version of the rant as to where we think we're going. I could be wrong. I still think the economy slows down because prices are high. But in all that, I think the context of the thing we're going to need to take away is that this sort of utter faith that we have a one factor economy where we just yank this rate lever up and down, and that somehow drives the rest of the engine has died a
1: very ugly and very public death. And that's going to be pretty interesting to see how it goes forward. Playing off that, uh, I think everyone has this concept of that in 2008, All the bank crashes because all of the exotic financial instruments are created. There was this, you know, big short movie about it that they did a great job explaining it. But what it seems SVB was not actually playing that game. So Chase, can you explain maybe what happened? Because it seems like SVB did invest in very
2: safe assets and still collapsed. So a a little more history. I'm playing the role of the historian here. So you're exactly right. They weren't actually transacting in these like wild securities like we saw in 2008, the ones that bore the excessive risk that we talked about earlier. But they were actually buying safe securities. They were buying mortgage-backed securities, which I know that that had a really different definition back in the day in terms of the underlying assets. But these were safe assets, and they were buying uh, fixed-income treasuries from, from the Fed. But it was, ac- it was exactly the purchase of safe securities that was problematic. So, so here's how to think about it. Most banks take deposits and make variable rate loans to businesses. Variable rate, meaning the interest rate on the loan increases as the Fed rate increases. And then banks pay more on deposits, which are basically depositors making loans to bank. When interest rates rise, you know, if I go to a bank and an interest rate is 5% and they're only paying me 2%, that means that my, that my real return on that is minus 3%. Meaning my money is depreciating and I don't want that. So they have to increase rates on deposits. And the spreads between what they earn from the loans that they're issuing and what they pay in deposits uh, is, is actually how banks make money. And as rates rise, with most banks, the rates that they pay on deposits increase and the rates of the loans that they've made also increase, and many times that spread is actually increasing, and so profitability improves. The problem with SVB is the majority of the customers are startups, which don't typically generate free cash flow and therefore don't typically take corporate loans. This is why they raise equity from VCs like us. And to generate yield and to pay interest on deposits, SVB bought long-term fixed rate assets like treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, And so when interest rates actually started to rise, the interest that they were paying on the deposits surpassed that that they were earning from these fixed rate bonds. and so. You know, the, the TLDR here is what did they do wrong? Well, they, they incurred an excessive amount of interest rate risk. And I know it's easy to look at the bank and say, oh, well, it's not their fault. The interest rates went up. Like, how can we, you know, how could we have expected them to, to foresee this? And I think that that kind of is the point. The bank's job is to be a risk manager and actually take the right kind of risk. And they took an excessive amount of interest rate risk on their portfolio. Uh, especially when you look at this relative to the other banks that were out there.
0: I was just gonna pitch in with one thought on that as well, which is it, just to step back and where this isn't some crazed tinfoil hat, anti-Fed rat, it's just that. The Fed has raised rates to 4 point something percent. If you look out five years or 10 years, you go to the market and you say, what can I what can I borrow at, 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 at I'm gonna get about 3.5% right now. So there's about a one percentage point difference. It is not hard to figure out that if you're a bank who has to pay deposits on that 4.5%, whose only ability to lend is going to be getting about 3.5%, you're losing 1% a year. And that's what the inverted yield curve really just means. It means that short term rates are higher than long term rates. And for a bank, that is a flat out hard math money losing proposition. It's also a money losing proposition for anyone else who is trying to do anything in the asset economy. So just to pitch that in, this is where. The market is telling us the natural rate out there shouldn't be about 3.5%, and the fence cranked it up. And that's fine, but there's no God given reason for that. And more importantly, it mechanically will destroy the profitability of the banks over time.
3: So oh, I actually just have a question, which is in the scheme of, in the grand scheme of things, with all of the stuff that's happened over the last couple of years, like COVID, interest rates going up, uh, et cetera, I'm vaguely surprised that we've only seen two somewhat large banks fail. at I'd, I'm curious to hear from people who know better than me, how much can we realistically hope like regulation is going to prevent stuff like this in the future? Is is this really something that we can just regulate away completely? And if we assemble the right rules, we'll end up with like a really great system where this never happens again and everybody is completely safe, but both banks still function as normal? Or is this kind of part of the inevitable tidal flow of the way that the financial system actually works.
0: I actually took the class of the guy who got the Nobel Prize for looking into bank regulation about one or two years ago. So I actually know something here. The, the thing about banks, and Chase has said this very well, is they are inherently unstable. The whole system is structurally unstable because you are basically taking in short-term deposits that can disappear tomorrow, and then you're lending it out or putting it against longer-term assets. And that no matter how you set that up, that's always potentially at risk for a bank run, which we've just seen. And so to, to answer your question, there's there is no actual regulatory fix for this except what you've seen right now, which is number one, you take care of the depositors because it wasn't their fault. And by the way, the 250,000 number has always been somewhat of fantasy. What it's trying to protect against is, you know. Bank over here is offering 2% interest and failing bank over here is offering 5% interest. Anyone who goes after that 5% knows, knows damn well that they're they're taking a lot of risk. That's what that limit is intended to stop. But otherwise, depositors are always going to get made whole. But the idea that we could somehow have a free market banking system, there's no math, no academic research, and one very big Nobel Prize that says no way, not going to happen. Got to be regulated. And the whole system is just inherently stable. It's like a quantum. If it collapses, it
2: collapses. Alex, you asked a question about what, you know, is it possible for regulators to actually, you know, actually help here? I'm not going to necessarily speculate on what's possible, but I do want to emphasize like the importance of them actually being involved in this process. Because I'll, I'll repeat a statement I made earlier. Like, whenever we as a deposit, they're going go to a bank, we are actually lending the bank money. We are in that sense underwriting, like we are lenders to the bank and therefore, uh, yeah, there's some onus to underwrite the credit worthiness of this bank that we are giving our money to. But like we as depositors shouldn't be responsible for underwriting the credit worthiness of our bank. One, because we can't get access to that information to make these judgments. And then two, uh, none of us are sophisticated enough to actually do that. Or very few of us are sophisticated enough to do that. Uh, present company not included. And and so this is what we're hiring regulators to do. Like this is their job. Their job is to basically give me confidence as the consumer that when I put money in a bank, that they are credit worthy enough to actually be a good steward of the dollars that I'm giving them. And so Steve brought up an important point, which is FDIC insurance. And so this is the 250K amount that regulators will guarantee when whenever you put money into a bank. And they're saying like, look, no matter what happens to this bank, we are going to promise you that $250,000 uh, is safe in this bank. Above that amount, we actually can't say. And one of the problems is that a massive percentage of their depositors had larger deposits than $250,000. And I think that that number is sitting somewhere around only about 7% actually had deposits below this threshold. So that means that 200-ish billion that was sitting in the bank, uh, the, the majority of it, or 94% of it, was actually uninsured. And so then it raised the question, well, what is the fix here? Do we increase the FDIC amount, this insurance amount? Well, the problem with, with this proposition, and, and I don't know what the fix is, but I'm just giving you know the bank side of the argument. The problem with this side, this proposition is the banks are the ones paying this insurance. They're the ones filling this fund to insure their depositors against some bank run or a bank failure. And so if we go to the banks and we say, hey, we need you to insure all of the deposits entirely, well then of course insurance premiums are gonna go up and that's gonna hurt bank profitability, which is already a low margin business. And if bank profitability hurts, then banks can't really exist. And so it's kind of a catch 22. And so I I think maybe the the thing we should be considering is not is 250,000 the right amount for for a bank, I think the thing that we should be considering is what percentage of deposits are uninsured. And if that percentage crosses some threshold, that's when regulators should actually sift from procedural oversight back to substantive saying, hey, we're not just going to say, you know, hey, you've got your person saying that the fire escape is good. So therefore, your, your bank is safe. We're actually going to look under the hood and make those assessments ourselves uh, on behalf of the depositors who have hired us to do this so they can safely put money in the bank. Let me just
0: pitch in, Alex, to answer the other question that you kind of implied is why, by having more banks failed and more importantly, what's going to happen in the future, what you want to imagine is sort of a conveyor belt and that's just time moving on. And we've got a whole bunch of people who are basically holding their breath or I'm now mixing metaphors. As the conveyor belt goes along, it leads off cliff and Silicon Valley Bank just fell off the cliff and so did Signature Bank and another bank fell off the cliff. There's a lot of other people who have more push in. So they can lend at, at 3.5% and borrow at 4.5% for long enough that they're not going to go bust quite yet. But as the conveyor belt moves along, they too will fall off the cliff. And, and this, I think, goes to why the market has suddenly priced in a rate cut is that it's a situation where the few weak caribou die quickly or the few weak canaries in the coal line die quickly, and then you get a warning and then you step back. If you don't act on the warning, then more canaries die, more caribou die, and then you get a mass die off because no one can lend at 3.5% and borrow at 4.5% indefinitely and stay in business because math doesn't work. So that's the super simple version of where we are right now and why, if you look forward, we will either see more bank failures or we will see the rate environment adjusting.
1: So let's talk a little bit about more of the role of the regulators and stress testing for that environment. Because what it seems to me that happened is we're just fighting the last war, right? The previous war. We stress tested the bank for credit risk, which was the majority of what happened in 2008. But it seems like with um, SVB in particular, there was a lot of money that came almost out of nowhere. It wasn't that the bank suddenly became amazing at business and, you know, they kind of increased their asset management from $50 billion to like $200 uh, billion. It's really what happened there is their risk profile was completely different than what happened before. And it seems like no one actually was paying
3: attention to that profile of risk. So I would love to hear more about that. <laughs> this is a pretty interesting point because it, it reminds me a little bit of like why we take our shoes off at like, airports, right? Uh, where like the you know, airport security posture is fully prepared for like the 2001 threat <laughs> and may or may not be prepared for the future.
0: Yeah, I'll pitch in where I maybe not so worried is to take your point of that people are always fighting the last war is the one good piece of news is per Chase's comments, it's kind of the last war. If there's one thing that we have a playbook for that we understand, it's your classic bankrupt. We know how to handle them. And if you look at SVB and how it got handled over the weekend, okay, it was chaotic. A lot of people got worried, but broadly speaking, we opened for business on Monday. They did the right thing, which is take care of all the depositors and, and we're clean. And if the next bank that fails also does that, we've got a, a, a playbook to handle that. So we don't have a Lehman crisis. We don't have a Merrill crisis. We not have a Bear Stearns crisis, unlike 2008. The bad news is just because we managed to win a few battles and this is where you get to this issue, it doesn't mean we can just put up with an indefinite string of bank failures because the banking system is kind of important. So that's where you run into a great,
2: we're okay in the near term, we fought the last war, but we also know where this leads. So you made a a statement like classic bank run. I actually think that this, we have a new flavor of bank runs that we have to figure out how to deal with because the systematic risk used to be financial. Meaning if one bank is financially unstable, what happens if that bank goes down? Is it gonna bring down the rest? And this is a very like, calculated exercise, right? Like what is the risk exposure that this brain has on the rest of the system? But right now, the bank run or the systematic risk of a bank run is no longer just financial, it's also cultural and, and look no further than uh, the GameStop saga as proof of that and then we'll draw that forward to what we saw most recently. The GameStop saga was one example of the power of meme velocity that should have been a ocean moment for regulators. And so when I say, when I say meme, what I'm talking about is Richard Dawkins definition, uh, which he wrote in a book back in 1976, which he defines a meme as an idea, behavior, or style that spreads from person to person within a culture. And, you know, Mm -hmm. since this is, you know, since then, this has been reappropriated by the internet. But the point is, there was a meme that these hedge funds who are betting against GameStop, which was a very rational decision at the time, like this business wasn't as good as it used to be things were shifting online. And there was a reasonable business case to be made that GameStop was not a great business. But the internet saw it differently. And the internet came together with rapid fire and brought down GameStop. And so we think about meme culture here and what happened. The irony of this whole situation is SVB was totally solvent. They had more assets on the balance sheet to cover deposits than there were deposits. But whenever there was some concern with SVB's irresponsible handling of interest rates, all of a sudden meme culture kicked in. It didn't matter that people, like the bank was actually healthy. What really mattered is what people thought and the velocity with which this meme actually transacted across the economy. And there is no, like one of the most insular economies in the world is that of Silicon Valley. And so it just took a few people to raise their hand and say, oh no, no, this is a problem. And then at that point, the reasonable thing to do, the rational thing to do is actually pull dollars out quickly. And, and, we, and, and there were $42 billion worth of deposits within a 10-hour period. And so if you're a regulator, you don't necessarily just have to think about, well, what is the risk that this bank might fail and hurt the system? Now you have to think about what is the risk that somebody has an idea that could cause the system to fail? What is the risk that somebody might come out and spout something that doesn't necessarily have to be true? Keep in mind, GameStop as a great business was not a true thing. SVB as an insolvent entity was not a true thing. But it was this idea that it, would, that it could fail that actually led to the failure and did so with a velocity that regulators just couldn't even contend with.
1: Alex, uh, a lot of people talked about uh, the analogy of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank to a prisoner dilemma
3: and basically saying that this was the rational thing to do. Do you agree with that? So I'm going to push back a little bit on Chase saying uh, that this it was rational to pull your money out. And I can tell you what it was like from the perspective of a person who had some assets tied up in SUV at the time. I don't think this is a true prisoner's dilemma. A true prisoner's dilemma, if you cooperate with the police, you get to leave jail. And for the vast majority of deposits in a bank run like this, where the deposit size is like many millions of dollars on average, you do not get that. The vast majority of deposits are staying in the bank. You will not successfully withdraw them. So I think that you end up in one of like two or three scenarios. The first scenario is like during the bank run, the vast majority of deposits are not coming out. They're they're just going to get stuck, right? Um, there's a second bucket of people, which is like the people who decide to pull out just before the bank run starts. So. I don't think this is a true prisoner's dilemma because true prisoner's dilemma in the prisoner's dilemma. If you cooperate with the police, you actually get to leave jail and the other person stays in jail. And for the vast majority of depositors in Silicon Valley Bank, I don't think that was ever a plausible reality. The vast majority of depositors, when the treasury size is multiple millions of dollars, are not getting out of the bank during a bank run. This may be different if you were in like a consumer bank where the average account size is low, but that's not the way that Silicon Valley Bank is structured as an entrepreneur who was watching this sort of explode in real time, I found it really frustrating because it seemed like there are three options for you if you're trying to get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, the first bucket is that you are in the bank run, in the middle of the bank run. You're not getting your money out in that case, right? Uh, if you're in the middle of the bank run, like 70% of depositors, 70 to 80% of the depositors are never, those withdrawals are never going to succeed.
1: You know, Chase, you're Absolutely correct, but I don't think there is much for us to do about stopping memes, right? I think the internet is the internet and we cannot really, you know, have it behave. I think there were at least rumors about that there was some center that called for like censorship of the internet to prevent um the next bank run. Uh, I I don't know if it's true or not, because it seems like A crazy thing to suggest but the point is it is a crazy thing to suggest so the question is now should we just now start thinking about a regulatory framework or a risk management framework that just has to take that into consideration that yes there can a meme can spread and within 10 hours 42 billion dollars disappear and this is just something that we have to account for. Go ahead, Steve.
0: Yeah, I think where I would go is, it is absolutely a classic bank run as in the point of you have your sort of George Bailey, it's a wonderful life, a bunch of depositors standing, desperately trying to take all their money out where you're totally right. And your great point Chase is the velocity and the spread, the, the sort of blast radius of that has exploded because I can't remember the town, but wherever George Bailey is in his little savings and loan. It's only the local depositors that are gonna be there. Here, first of all, everyone's gonna hear about it. Second of all, you notice you don't have to go to the bank and stand in front of the teller. You can just go hit a website and start taking your money out. So the reason $42 billion of, at- of deposits got withdrawn drawn, is because everybody could do that with a few clicks of amounts. And so those are two things that are different this time and the regulator's gonna to have to move on, which mostly means the regulatory response has to be that much faster. Alex, to a point you made, The the end of the day, what still happens is a bank run, once it starts, inevitably, nobody will get all their money. That's kind of the problem. That's why banks are inherently unstable in this kind of quantum state is if you actually try and pull all the money out, think George Bailey, it's not there. It's somewhere else. And if you force a fire sale of the assets, you almost never get 100 cents of the dollar. So that means by definition, it's not there. And that's why we, in the end, have a regulatory framework. And that's necessary.
3: Is it actually rational for VCs to encourage their portfolio companies to pull out at any point in this process. Because it seems like the like expectation is not... I mean, so first of all, I don't think there's any upside. Right? You're not going to make money, generally speaking, pulling, encouraging your companies to pull money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, I think that the best case scenario is that during the bank run, essentially zero people are getting withdrawals out, right? So like on Friday, I'm not sure that I heard of anybody who actually got money out towards the latter half of Friday uh, in the banking day. On the other hand, if you are a venture capital firm and you have uh, a venture capital firm and you have hundreds of portfolio companies and you go tell them to pull all their money out, the downside is that you will potentially cause a bank run. And I think... One thing that is interesting about what happened at Silicon Valley Bank is it's not clear to me that the people who moved first actually did get all of their money out in time, right? Like um, by some accounts, Founders Fund was the first to to warn their portfolio and a lot of their portfolio did get caught up in it and like Rippling publicly got caught up in it. And part of their flagship product was tied up in the SVB fiasco. So when you look back on this, it's not actually clear to me that They did the right thing or they were materially better off for having told their portfolio to pull all the money out. I think it is somewhat likely that they actually played a significant role in catalyzing this and putting their biggest, most important, not their biggest, but their most important portfolio company of this generation at risk. And I think if we're going to like play this back in a couple of years, it's worth remembering that the people who are earliest to the table here didn't actually get all their money out in time. I think if we're going to go back in time and play this back, like it doesn't seem to me clear that it is worth it for venture capital firms to actually encourage their portfolios to leave the bank. I think it's probably at best value neutral, but probably actually positive, like positive expectation for everybody to just not do that.
1: But Alex, this is a very hindsight is 2020 moment because we're all sitting here after the Fed stepped in and basically... Assure depositors that their money will be safe. We could have had a completely different narrative where, you know, the powers to be in Congress would actually decide to fuck with Silicon Valley basically because their constituents, what they think about. Silicon Valley bailout, they think that probably Larry and Sergey from Google are uh, getting checks from the government and that the taxpayer is paying for it. So actually, I'm not blaming Congress for saying like, you know what? We actually don't want to be involved. And thankfully, the situation was, you know, resolved in a good way for everyone that all depositors were made whole. But it could have turned a very, very
3: different way and it could have been, you know, fairly nasty. Totally, but, you know, in the event that, so like more than, I may be doing the math wrong on this, but I believe like at the height, more than a million dollars a second yeah. are leaving Silicon Valley Bank or, or uh, people are attempting to wire out of Silicon Valley Bank, right? No matter what you do, no matter if they're, no matter how you prepared for this event, those people withdrawing at that point in, the, in time are not getting their money. They're not. The only thing that is, that is relevant at this point is whether the federal government is coming in to backstop the depositors. You're not getting your money out in, in, at that time. So at that point, that's like 80, 90% of people trying to withdraw their money. At that point, it is not rational to add to the deposit, to the outgoing deposit, like balance sheet. That's just not, it's not rational because you're not, you're never going to get your money out. It's way too late at that point in time. The only point in time, Where it is plausibly rational, and I'm going to argue it's still not rational, is before any of that actually starts. And the game that you have to play is if you are a venture capital firm and you have 100 portfolio companies or somewhere between 100 and 500 portfolio companies, you go tell people that they need to get their money out. I think the chances of you triggering a bank run are actually reasonably high, especially if you're a tier one firm like Founders Fund is. and my observation is that even in that case where they're among the first, perhaps the first, the, the first firm to encourage people to withdraw their money, uh, even in the case where their number one most important company in the current portfolio, the current outstanding portfolio, maybe the most important company since Facebook, uh, has advanced warning of this, even they didn't get out in time. So who's going to get out in time in the next bank run? Rationally speaking, there's no way this, this math doesn't, Like this math doesn't work. Like that's the best case scenario. You have extremely sophisticated investor, extremely sophisticated company that is very important to that investor. And they're the first movers and they didn't get out in time. So like my proposition is it's actually not rational even to start. It's not rational at all to even suggest to your portfolio companies because the downside risk is that you're going to obliterate 80 to 90% of your portfolio. That's the blast radius of this decision, right? So that's why I think no matter where you are at this point in, in in the curve, I just think it's not rational to to suggest that. Let me pitch
0: in a, a lesser known element of the game theory. There's a prisoner's dilemma, and then there's the Blazing Saddles game theory. <laughs> there's that scene where uh, the the guy puts a gun to his own head and says, "Nobody move," with this guy gets it. And I, I think that's where there is some rational logic here, which is by hurting in that manner, the the, the essential threat that Silicon Valley presented to the U.S. Congress was, if you don't do something, we all blow up on Monday. And faced with the choice of blowing up Silicon Valley and doing something, the choice was obvious. But, and that's, so there's almost some rationality in the panic. Um, But otherwise, I agree in the sense of, if you think that by acting, you're going to get your money out, exactly the math does not work. Um, But this is also, I think, why you, I don't expect people to say, oh, this problem could be, can be contained because in a situation like that, the logic actually is to go to maximum loss and threaten disaster on the, on the portfolios of all those Congress critters. And in the end of the day, they will respond to that. I'll make one final point is let's face it, everybody tweeting over the weekend, many of them have their congressmen's phone numbers. A lot of them have their senators phone numbers and all of them are air quotes, important and wealthy. This matters in this context, um, because if it had been some bank in podunk, nowheresville, we would not have taken care of it. But that's also sort of the reality, the situation and the system. And as we move up the stack in terms of the relative importance of these assets, and this is where you can take some small bank runs down here, but as it moves up the stack, the urgency to act and the proximity to somebody
2: whose votes count starts to go up. So, Alex, I think the argument that you're making about this being a rat, an irrational decision to to uh, to move first and tell, bring, like, withdraw money from the bank, depends on you know it, you're describing the prisoner's dilemma, and in a pre, a prisoner's dilemma is a multi-shot game where you can respond you respond to your opponents by doing what they did, and you learn um, from those opponents over multiple rounds. The problem here is this was a single-shot game, right? I the once I made the decision to pull the money out, like there were no more cycles here where I could put it back in and we could try it again. And it was definitely in and, and and one thing that enforced the enforced the single shot game is that on Friday morning, uh there were there were no more opportunities to pull money out of the bank. And so in that sense, the rational decision is to get the money out of the bank. And I can give like kind of company A, company B anecdote, you know, as someone who experienced this on one side you know, as an investor, you know, company A got money out on Thursday and company A had payroll the following week and had no problem making payroll. Company B did got did not get money out on Thursday. And despite the fact that they had money, you know, locked in this, you know, in this fiasco, they had no dollars through which to pay their employees. And so to pay payroll was was a non-option. And, and then, you know, you, you're forced to come up with other options outside of, you know, you're forced to come up with other options at that point. And so, in that sense, the rational decision is to take the single shot, which is in a single shot game, the person who acts first is the one who wins. And this was a situation where to to win, be able to pay your employee the following week, you had to act first. And I'll I'll just leave everyone with a quote here, and then I'll you know pass the ball. But the wise friend uh, had passed along a quote: when withdrawing from a bank, redeeming from a fund or fleeing from an authoritarian regime, there is rarely much penalty for leaving early and an existential danger for being late. You know, just to add to that existential danger, on Saturday and Sunday and Friday, as investors in these companies, we are sitting around looking at all the information that we could from the smartest people on the internet and trying to figure out like, how much of these dollars are we reasonably going to recover? And there were, guesses as low as, you know, 60%, as high as 90%, but there were none that were 100%. And so we were then in a position thinking to ourselves like, okay, this company that had 11 months of bird, now they've got nine and they did nothing to, to get to the point of nine other than being a depositor at this bay. And we've got to figure out new options.
1: Let me add on that uh, in terms of actually quote Chase, you mentioned. If anyone wants to know how it feels to be a CEO uh, in that moment, I would highly recommend uh, the movie Margin Call and to go uh, and watch it. We actually watched it over that weekend to just uh, remind myself that it can be worse uh, than the experience that You're I a masochist. Just, uh, Yeah, that I just went through. It. And there's a this brilliant quote uh, from the character played by Jeremy Irons is like you know, there are three ways to make a living in this business. Be first, be smarter, or cheat, and we don't cheat. So that is um, one of those things that basically being first, and I, I think, Alex, there was another thing that played a role. At least I can speak uh, throughout this entire conversation. The one thing I can speak about is being a CEO, of a startup that, you know, faced uh, uh, this dilemma. We also have responsibility toward our employees and the employees when it was friday and uh, they were asking hey you know mr ceo that is supposed to take care of our payroll what did you do right and when we said we actually managed to pull the money out like everyone started clapping right because like you know holy shit like we probably gonna you know have payroll and the team acted well and by the way this is also so we are fortunate enough to have Institutional VCs uh, who invested in it, I was also looking to them for advice, and I have to say that the ones who gave us the advice of move fast and get your money out. Now I have you know respect for them versus the ones that say, oh, you know, we're monitoring the situation and like we're just we're sitting there idly. And then there was like other things that also happened over the weekend. There was many VCs firms that I was talking to all my founder friends over that weekend that also. Uh, put money to uh, make payrolls for the companies that couldn't take their money out. And there was like a lot of, uh, I think, good behavior and bad behavior that was discovered during that one very short or very long weekend. But uh, but I do think that there is more to play than just like the prisoner dilemma aspect of what is your balance uh, on your account at the end of the day.
3: I think it's really interesting that, that I started talk. I started this conversation talking about how I think that the... Uh, talking about the primary actor as being like the VC firm that foments, encourages their portfolio to to pull out, bank, like pull out deposits out of out of the bank. And now we're talking about individual portfolio companies, uh, deciding whether or not to pull their deposits out of the bank. And I think this is actually a critical difference. My point is not that it is irrational for individual companies to pull out. Uh, my point is that uh, it is actually not rational for VC firms to be the first firm to encourage people to pull out. And I actually think that that is an important point. The reason is because they have disproportionate leverage over the rest of the ecosystem. So the fact that Founders Fund, which is a very sophisticated investor, suggests that it is time to move your money, is enough, in my view, to trigger a bank run. And so when you do that, right, there isn't an upside. It's not like you're potentially going to make a lot of money triggering a bank run as a firm like that. Your maximum upside is that you trigger a run and then like 70% of your company treasuries are totally tied up and potentially completely gone. Right. That is a bet that I just don't like, I am surprised to hear institutional investors make that. And when I hear, when I hear people who are proud of telling companies to pull out right after like founders fund, my response to that is I think less of them because it does not seem to me that that is a good risk calculus. The idea that you would potentially uh, cause something that tanks 70% of your portfolio treasuries is just totally crazy. I, I just don't, I don't understand how you make that math work. Uh, for individual companies, I think it's different because because when you are making a decision about your employee's payroll and stuff like that, uh, you, you know, like I, I can understand why if, founder's fund is telling you, like, there is going to be a run on the bank or something. Can understand why a founder would be like, well, I don't really have that much information or that many choices and I'm going to pull my money out. Like, I can understand that decision. I don't understand why you would be the first company, like the first firm to say something like that. Alex, I think that's a really good point. And let me try and give you a counterfactual.
0: Let me give a counterfactual as to what else could have happened where I do agree with you is, you know, it's Wednesday last week. Everyone's getting worried. All of these VCs, and there are not that many of them, have each other's phone numbers. And they all get on a conference call on Wednesday night, and they say, folks, we have a problem here. And they call up the head of Silicon Valley Bank and say, look, buddy, you need to go raise more equity. We'll kick in a small amount. You need to go do it. I don't care if that's one penny per share, or we're going to pull our money. And it's a little like the 1907, the famous 1907 thing where JP Morgan stepped in and saved the US banking system. Collectively, a relatively small number of VCs who know each other, have dinner together, hang out a lot, could have acted collectively in order to prevent this bank run, as opposed to going through the process of the bank run. Because practically speaking, there are ways that Silicon Valley could have been made whole and those assets could have been saved. So there is a a tremendous failure of collective action. And you can't sort of pretend that it was an uncoordinated mob. It's actually a relatively small number of people sitting on extraordinarily large chunks of money over which they have influence, and you have to you do have to say that is a collective failure of people who do know better and more importantly have the means to coordinate.
1: I want to push back a little bit. Of that. I wonder if it was a collective failure or was it actually a collective success? Because one thing that will happen, and I would love to hear more from you, Chase, as we see here. Is I think we now understand the risk of having one bank serve an entire economy, right? And maybe Silicon Valley was just doomed, you know, to die, and we just actually accelerate that. And I think one of the things that will happen out of that is people will move uh, to other banks. Unfortunately, you know, for some part of the economy, it probably will be the largest uh, banks in the world, but banks that are not just exposed to you know those movements where you know basically 10 vcs can hop on a coal and completely crack a, a bank maybe that's actually a good thing ah, i'll take the other side of that equation which is
0: uh you know the bunch of a bunch of those vcs also are proud libertarians <laughs> and uh it's it's funny there's never a libertarian in a crisis they're always you know it's like there's never an atheist in a foxhole so wh- where i'd kind of push back on that is it, it, there was a lot of value and a lot of, of, of worthwhile stuff that came out of Silicon Valley Bank exactly because it was so specialized in tech. And it is sort of a one-industry bank. The problem is the people in that one industry need to make sure that that bank is boring, dull, low margin, and doesn't take crazy interest rate bets. And that requires this awful, horrible thing, which absent last Wednesday, everybody in Silicon Valley likes to pretend they hate, which is regulation. And or somebody stepping in and making sure that this thing doesn't get over its keys. So I don't, there was a tremendous amount of value and still is a tremendous amount of value in having a single industry bank. The issue is deluding yourself that that can happen in some fantasy free market when banks are inherently non free market creatures. That's, I think, where I'm going to push it back again on a collective group of people that on their good days when the world isn't falling apart really love to pretend that they don't need that horrible people, regulators in Washington, slowing everything down. If those horrible regulators in Washington had been allowed to do their job at below 50 billion in assets, we would not have this problem.
3: Vitali, so am I understanding your position basically that it is better to co-locate all of the, all of the risk to the big four? I mean, that, that seems like a more systemic problem. Like if, if like Morgan Stanley or something is ever under serious threat right? Like that could potentially be way bigger than like some regional bank that just happens to have like a bunch of Silicon Valley deposits. Is that really what you want? Yes. The question
1: depends on the context and the framing that you're looking for. I'm saying for the entire world, obviously we don't want a, like all of the rest to be with, you know, four or five lar- large banks, but I'm saying for an industry, I think that was like having like, I don't know, 50% of, you know, 50% of the SARPs is not exactly 50% of the capital, but from, you know, one of the you know, largest growth engines of the economy, having all of that money in a single regional bank that so to be quite honest was way over its skis and had no business of like managing that much money, right? I think that was a risk that should have been mitigated. And my prediction, and I don't know if Chase, you folks have this conversation with, like every single subsequent term sheet that will now be issued for, you know, over a certain amount Will now have some provision in it that you need to hold your money in, you know, what is considered a, a safe and a bank that is just not uh, not that concentrated for this particular economy.
2: I think it's too soon to see to say whether there'll be a ripple effect on term sheets, or at least this hasn't been something that's entered the discourse at, at the firm I, I'm at. But but you do make an interesting point around you know big banks versus like small banks and what concentration. You know like and should like what would be the impact of everyone being with like one of these large banks versus just being a very fragmented model if you look at the banking system in the united states we kind of have like three classes of banks we have those that we'll we'll just stick with round numbers but those with fewer than 50 billion dollars in assets we'll call these like the small you know the small banks the, the community banks the local banks and these ones you know by definition of their size are not systematic like if the bank and my parents you know, town in the middle of Oklahoma goes out of business. Like we're never going to hear about it in Silicon Valley, right? Then you have the large bank above two hundred and fifty billion, which are the systematically important financial institutions. The the, the or the CFEs. I don't know what the actual how it's how we're pronouncing the acronym. That you know, if one of these banks fails, we like everyone like this will cause a global recession, which is something that you know, we started to see inklings of in two thousand eight. And so for that class of banks, we have enhanced re- regulatory oversight that's substantive, right? The problem is, is, we have these kind of this kind of mid market, right? This, this 50 billion to 250 that doesn't have the regulatory ups uh, like oversight of the 250 that we've learned is actually systematic in the sense that when SVB went down, there was real risk that we were going to see, you know, uh, you know, a very scary ripple effect from that. And it was in this no man's land. And so the question we should ask is like, well, should we be regulating these mid-market banks or should we have a system that, you know, where we have either all large or a bunch of small ones or all the above? Chase, let me follow on with that. And it's a little conspiracy
0: theory, Shandor, it's kind of the logic of all banking markets. The U.S. is really unique in having so many banks. Most places, one reason Credit Suisse caused some trouble this year, this, this week, is because it turned out, Switzerland has two banks. There's UBS and Credit Suisse. That's basically it. Plus all these little private banks. The U S is really unique in having this large number of banks. You will also point out, you also notice that if you're one of that magic top group and you're too big to fail, the bad news is you have more regulation. The good news is you're feel like you're untouchable and your only potential threats are that middle group that you just described. And so you can step back and say that broadly speaking, I'm, if I'm sitting at J.P. Morgan Chase would not be deeply unhappy. If we ended up in a world where there's me and then you drop down to the 50 billion banks out in Oklahoma and there's nobody threatening me in the middle now from a free market perspective this isn't a good thing because big fat people at the top then get big fat lazy and profitable from a shareholder perspective this is great because big fat lazy and profitable is a good thing to own and or podunk down here and i don't need to worry about it. you can see here there's a public policy value of trying to maintain that middle and you can also see some pushback of, hey, maybe we can just clip out a few of these guys along the way or buy them for cheap and consolidate the banking sector further. And there is somewhere in there, out there, there's been a multi-year agenda to that to that uh, effect. Because as you can remember growing up, there used to be a lot more bigger banks, and they've all slowly gloned into such few very large ones. That's probably where the trend is heading. It's not necessarily good in terms of people who are better
2: served by, for example, a highly specialized bank like Silicon Valley Bank. I actually do think that we do, we need the middle market banks because they do create a competitive environment for the large banks. Like whenever startups think about where to put their deposits, they are making decisions between these middle market banks like SDB and First Republic and larger banks like Bank of America and Chase. And so I do think we need that. I guess my point is, if we're going to have it, we need to regulate them now that we've, you know, as if they were going to be systematic because we have learned that they actually can be through this SDB debacle. And Chase,
0: violently agreeing with you, which is we need those things. And it's more just, I'll just say it's the, there there is a group of people out there that would not be sad to see them go away. And not for reasons that are good for the nation or good for the health of our broader industry or good for the macro economy. It's purely simply because then I'm that much more secure in my dominant position in the marketplace. If I were to try and, Take a weird metaphor. It would be like tech right now is dominated by Google, Facebook, a couple of really big players. And to some extent, they crowded out the space or used to. We'll see if that's changing now underneath for, for mid-sized innovative companies to come out under from underneath their shadow.
1: This is kind of the point also uh, on the banks is we probably should think, and this might not be even a regular problem. I think maybe as Silicon Valley insiders, right? Is it safe for us to have a systemic race? Because to be honest, like until last week, I would never have guessed that the thing that can bring, you know, the collapse of Silicon Valley will be this like one regional bank that, you know, goes down. Right. And we were, at least for me, too close for my comfort to that actually happening. Right. Like Chase said you know, we could have got not, the problem is not so much 50% on on the dollar, is like just how long would it take you to get that 50% back, right? If you just were given a creditor note and then you have to go and fight the system in order to get all that money back, that would kill thousands and thousands of startups, right? So what I'm saying is like, if we have such concentration and, you know, this is like in software architecture, if you have the single point of failure, like, this is where we should diversify the risk. And what, what I'm saying is that it doesn't have to, all the money should go to Goldman. Like, maybe, you know, we should find 50 regional banks and like, I think some banks are doing and, you know, deposit there to get the FDIC insurance or whatever the hacks are in order to guarantee the safety of the system. But I, I would say that now I look at Silicon Valley very, very differently in terms of the risk profile than how I was looking at only a week ago.
0: But I'll take the other side of that, which is, like I said, like Silicon Valley Bank offered a huge number of really specialized services that were uniquely valuable and uniquely useful to the ecosystem. I think though, to your second point is, did anyone in that ecosystem appreciate number one, how central they were? And number two, pay any attention to how vulnerable and fragile? They were? So there are two choices. We can s- sort of spread our deposits out over a bunch of people who are not as good at serving startups and the ecosystem will suffer on that. The alternate approach is to realize that we have a single point of failure and from a software perspective, just make sure it's absolutely bulletproof. And that means boring, low return, heavily regulated. And and that's, I think, where Silicon Valley has been caught out sort of talking both sides of its mouth is if you're going to have that, it's a little like I'm a network guy, right? So the network had better never go down. And if that means it's a single point of failure, it's a
3: single point of failure. You better make sure that thing's boring
0: and well regulated.
3: Holly, it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about this because earlier I think you were the one who said that, uh, you know, banking regulation is fully prepared for two thousand eight, but we're fully prepared for that for that for that risk profile. And hearing you describe like the risk profile, like the things that we've learned about the structure of banking for startups. Uh, it is not obvious to me that as the ecosystem matures, that lesson is going to be sufficient for building a system that doesn't have like, but I, I just, I wonder, I wonder if they're like, to what extent we can be assured that whatever replaces the current system is really going to be resilient in all of the, all of the ways that it should be for all of the future potential like liquidity risks, which is how I think of this.
1: But but this is actually, we have, you know, capital allocators in the system and, you know, the good thing about them, they're actually, you know, fairly influential, you know, and also somewhat also concentrated that they can actually, you know, start thinking about the problem. Because like I said, from all the things that could have happened, like, I think the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank was not, you know, at the top of the list. And I do think that now we need to start thinking about like what other things could go wrong that will topple the entire industry down, and it's actually you know not that crazy to have an industry board that thinks about those things right every single other industry has something you know similar, and I think they're probably something for vCS as well and you know but maybe that is now time I'm gonna start paying more attention because what the way I look at what happened last week is we avoided a mega, mega crisis. And to be honest, uh, I don't want to trust that we will be that lucky next time. I got a good
0: metaphor since large chunks of the South Bay seem to be out of power for the last two days, is because it's a very similar metaphor. Is I think though, well, I agree with you, the industry needs to be a little more responsible. There's two weird things about Silicon Valley constant power outages. And there's huge chunks of the place where you can't get decent internet and yet there is no collective action to make sure that those basic utilities in this case literally are functional mm-hmm. and, and i think there is this strange idea that it's somebody
1: else's job to provide that and i live in berkeley so it's not my problem but i do find it weird let's try to figure out what is the solar equivalent to steve's kind of pg e problem and how can we actually be a little bit more self-sufficient and figure out ways that we are not carrying that much of a risk. But for today, you know, Steve, Chase, Alex, thank you so much for joining us on this impromptu episode to talk about all the the fun things with Silicon Valley. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening.